Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. My guest is Leili Faroudi, a freelance journalist based in Tunis. She writes for the Times and Thomson Reuters Foundation, among others, on subjects including politics, migration, social rights and the environment. Our conversation today is about the link between a threatened Tunisian fishing industry and people smuggling in the Mediterranean. Leili, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, look, can we begin with an article you wrote recently, very powerful and poignant, with an extraordinary title, The Sea is Dead, How Fishing and Migration Collide on Tunisia's Shores. Now, that quote, The Sea is Dead, it comes from a young man you interviewed for the article. Can you tell me about him and, and why he told you that the sea is dead? Uh, so, Said, who I interviewed for the piece, is a fisherman from the coastal town of Mahras. And he echoes what a lot of fishermen say, that the richness of the sea is gone, that there are not as many fish as there used to be, that they're not as big as they used to be. Um, and this is for a number of reasons, um, and is, it is in, de- in line with global decrease in fish, talk, fish stocks because of overfishing, illegal fishing. There's also problems with pollution, invasive invasive species, and the, the issue of overfishing and illegal fishing in Tunisia in particular has in, increased since in the last 10 years since the revolution. So with Said, we started by talking about this illegal type of fishing, uh, KISS, which is a sort of mini trawler that scrapes the seabed near the shore, which uh, fishes small fish before their time and depletes the fish stock. And he was saying that this type of fishing was wrong but that he had to do it because it means that he would earn at least four times as much as he would working on someone else's boat doing traditional fishing where he would get um, something like, on a good month, 200 dinars only. So he, so that's what he was doing on the day that we met. It was in the, in the port. Um, but he also told me about how how he... Yeah, he does various things to um, to supplement his income. Uh, he worked as a boat driver a few years ago when it was still common for boats that were taking migrants to Italy to deliver people and come back. That doesn't happen so much anymore. Now, generally, boats that that go to Italy stay there and don't come back. So he made two trips in two weeks and earned more than $10,000, which is a huge amount compared to what he would be able to get. Uh, fishing, which he used to buy a piece of land and a boat for his dad, who is also a fisherman. It was actually his dad who was approached by the journey um, organisers, or you could say the smugglers, to be a driver, but he said no, and Said went instead. So the quote, the sea is dead, was actually, Said said that when he was thinking about what he wanted from the future. So he isn't looking particularly to leave Tunisia, unlike many other Tunisians, he wants to stay. But he says that there is nothing in the sea, so the sea is dead, so he needs to see if he can do something else. And these are illegal migrants, migrants smuggled into Italy, into Lampedusa. Uh, and how does that system work? I mean, these fishermen are approached by other gangs of, of smugglers. I mean, what, what is the process here? Yeah, the, it's an irregular route from Tunisia to, to Italy. Um, and they're not gangs in the, in the same way as 
I don't know if you think about Libya, it's not quite on the on the same scale. Like it's a much more, um, yeah. Like the, there are networks, and and I think there's maybe there's a lot more social pressure not to to cheat each other as much because um, most of the migrants going are Tunisians. Um, there'll be some some sort of social connection with the, with yeah with the people that are also. Uh, making money from this and so there are networks there are networks of people there are some people that are the that are organizing journeys um you'll have the networks in the regions that will put uh people from say an interior region in touch with someone on the coast that's organizing the boat that's buying that's buying the boat and a gps finding a driver um organizing for the week before the journey where they're going to stay and then the journey is made but the but but the, it kind of varies from from journey to journey i think that after the revolution i'm told that there that were individuals that were much more yeah that were kind of the big the big names in the in the area and quite a few of those are in prison that would make multiple journeys as i said before it used to be that boats would go with up to 100 people and come back now the boats are much smaller I mean, it could be like a boat as small as six meters. This is to so that they can evade the radars which have been installed and they detect larger boats with metal on them. And these boats are generally driven by uh, people who themselves want to migrate. And, and as you say, these are mainly Tunisians. Do you know how much people are having to pay to, uh, to get themselves uh, across the Mediterranean? So it's about 3,000 Tunisian dinars, which is just over 1,000 US dollars. Now, you also mentioned uh, the story of another young man whose parents were desperate to, to keep him away from the smuggling trade. Uh, can, can you tell a little bit about his story? Yeah, sure. So that's Ahmed and his parents, uh, so who's 17, and his parents are actually desperate to keep him away from migrating to Italy uh, on a boat as opposed to people smuggling. Although you could argue that he would be people smuggling because he wants to drive the boat. Um, but that's kind of what I was mentioning just now. That So he wouldn't be paid for that. He's doing that to pay for his ride. So he wouldn't have to pay the $1,000 to go because he's driving the boat. He's an only son. His parents are, are quite protective. They want him to succeed at school. They, um, they, yeah, he kind of does extra tuition so that he can get his high high school level exam and, and do something, work in something else than fishing, which is what his father does. So Ahmed, uh, currently, he works on his father's boat, like as an extra extra job. Um, which is why he feels he is able to drive the boat across to Italy. Um, and his cousin, actually, on the the week that we left, uh, the week that I met him, he had left on, and he had driven the boat across to Italy and others have from his town. So it becomes normalised, something that other people are doing, like migration, like it becomes this, it becomes the option because so many people are around you are doing it. So he doesn't want to fish, uh, like his father, because he views the sea as unreliable. The, the catch is not always good. But then he also sees a high school examination certificate as unreliable um, in guaranteeing him a, f- a good future because there are so many 
graduates and PhD students protesting because they are unemployed in Tunisia, where the unemployment rates, especially among the young, is very high. Do you think his parents will be able to prevent him from leaving, prevent him from getting on that boat and heading to Italy? I don't think they'd physically be able to prevent him. There are a lot of people that, I mean, I would say the most most people leave without their without their parents knowing. When I spoke to him, he seemed he seemed very angry and frustrated. I think that he just wanted to um, to get out and and lead his own life. But at the same time, he 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 was also like, oh, I'm the only son. So I don't know uh, for for Ahmed in particular what he'll end up doing. It's very tough, uh, very difficult choices, and and, and you say the anger and there's desperation as well. I mean, the parents are desperate. The desperate children. I mean, really, these are people with their backs to the wall, and human trafficking is a job. It's not just a job for those who drive the boats, but but there's a kind of cottage industry, isn't there? Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so it was um, a woman from Alataya, which is a um, a town in on the archipelago of Karkana, which juts out from Tunisia, and... This is a woman who's... So she's from that town. Her mother was a fishing captain. Her brother's still working in fishing. And so she's known the fishing industry over the years. She said that... Uh, yeah, she said that it created an income for her town, that she complained about the illegal the illegal fishing um, that had been happening in the waters that was creating problems for, for fishermen, um, for fishers that she knew, for her family... And she said that, yeah, that this was uh, an alternative that people watching could be paid to watch for the police, to disable streetlights, to house people, to cook food for people that are waiting to migrate. But the fishing industry in Tunisia hasn't transformed into a smuggling industry. There are just some overlaps. In Libya, this was much more the case. There's a Tunisian PhD student who did research on how the fishing industry in Libya was really destroyed by the conflict. Uh, So fishermen didn't have a choice. The water became too unsafe to fish. So fishers would either uh, sell their boats to smugglers, become smugglers themselves, or their boats would be taken by force. So yeah, just to say that in Tunisia, it's, it's definitely not that the whole that the whole of fishing has become smuggling. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking too. Uh, Tunisia kicked off the Arab Spring with uh, another young man. We've been talking about these these two young men uh, who set himself ablaze. The fruit vendor Mohamed Bouazizi, and he died in a protest that led to the overthrow of a dictator, creation of a democratic state. But the country is really struggling hard just to keep its head above water. What what is the wider economic picture in Tunisia now, Lily? Yeah, so the economic conditions in Tunisia are difficult. The Tunisian dinar has lost half its value against the dollar since the revolution. By some estimates, the purchasing power of families is down 88% uh, since that time. So the price of normal things... Um, like meat, people always talk about how unaffordable meat is. Um, and then pay pay is very low, and working conditions are bad. So if we think about the what Boazizi was um, was protesting for, it was dignity, and the, that's not the case for many working conditions. The that's if you do work. So the unemployment rate is now eighteen percent, 
that's up from 15% before corona, um, and it's 36% among the youth. Um, so, and the coronavirus pandemic has has made things has made things worse. So, the pandemic has destroyed the tourism industry for this year. Businesses have closed. Companies have shelled their staff. The investment minister said that the economy will shrink by six point five percent this year. And and unemployment. This affects fishing as well as migration because high unemployment means that more people are are working in fishing as a temporary job as a kind of stopgap solution and so this means that there are many many more boats like this year there's markedly more boats on a year when exports uh, for a period were not happening because of the pandemic and this means that there's even more overfishing of uh, already limited resources in the sea. Yes, and so so as the fish get smaller and and the overfishing continues, uh, the, the the problems build. Uh, you mentioned the COVID nineteen. How is Tunisia coping? Because initially, it looked like Tunisia was doing a pretty good job in managing COVID nineteen. Is that the situation now? Do you think? So earlier this year in in March, uh, Tunisia took very quick action to prevent the spread of the virus. Um, at the time, things in Italy were looking very bad. The hospitals were were overflowing. The people were there. Doctors were having to choose who to admit and who not to admit. And I think watching this, the Tunisian government, knowing that their healthcare system wouldn't be able to handle such volumes of patients, they took quick action to shut down the country, to close the borders, to stop travel even in between regions, and. And that that did um, stop the spread. There was something in the first the the lockdown, um, and then partial lockdown was about two and a half, two two and a half months, and the the number of deaths during that time was they had about fifty deaths, and the number of cases was at zero for for a good period, and then they reopened the borders. Um, so in this time, they managed to keep the number of, of cases down, but the economy hugely suffered, as I mentioned, and there was little help available for people in terms of government support, government payments. So now we're in the second wave. Things are worse than the first time round. There are more deaths. Um, there are more deaths now. There are there were a thousand new cases yesterday but the government and a lot of people are saying that shutting down is out of the question just because of the economic hits um, from last time so that's a very difficult place uh, to be in i mean it's shared by other countries clearly but you mentioned that 36 percent unemployment rate for young tunisians and this has to feed on this sense of desperation this sense of i've got to get out of here i've got to go somewhere yeah um i think that i mean we saw in the um in the months in the in the last this summer there was a, a market increase of um of people wanting to leave and um that's not just young people that's families as well not seeing yeah not not feeling very hopeful about their future um, in the country, what they can and what they can do here. Um, so, yeah, difficult challenges, difficult times. Uh, well, everywhere in the world, but 
you're in Tunis and, and you've been traveling to towns and villages across Tunisia. You've spoken to ordinary, ordinary folk. How would you judge the mood of the people? I mean, they've shown so much resilience and determination in the nine years since the Arab Spring. But, but how, how are they holding up? It's almost 10 years since the revolution in Tunisia. Um, and I think that, yeah, right now, going around there is a, a fatigue, a lack of hope, the times are, are difficult. Um, there was a, a spark, a lot of, there was a lot of hope last year after the election of Qais Saied, who people saw as something new, someone revolutionary that would serve their interests and not the interests of political parties. And then this year, COVID-19 hit, many lost incomes, their jobs. Meanwhile, the parliament engages in, in partisan fights. There were even punches thrown between MPs from, from Abir Musi's Free Distorian Party and the Islamist Party, Anahta. So in one year, there have been three different prime ministers named. One didn't gain confidence of parliament. One resigned because of corruption allegations. So now it's the third. So the economic hardship plus the uninspiring politics doesn't, doesn't fill people with hope, hence why many want to leave families as, as well as young people. So something a lot of people um, were telling me while I was on that, um, especially when I was in Kerkana Mahrez for the article that we were talking about, was that in the revolution they would chant Khobs me ben Ali le, so uh, bread, water, no ben Ali, and now it's Khobs me Tunis le, so bread, water, no Tunisia. So yeah, it's a difficult, um, a difficult time. Lily, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me on. It was um, great to talk to you. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Lely Faroudi, a freelance journalist based in Tunis. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to arabdigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. And for academics and retirees, we are now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.